It is time for the final podcast of 2020, and it couldn't come a moment too soon. Today is Monday, December 28th, and I say that having only discovered just an hour ago that today is actually Tuesday, December 29th, 2020. I chalk it up to the holiday weekend, to the fact that this Annus Horribilis of 2020 has gone on clearly many, many more months than it was allotted, and and also the days not being broken apart by travel or touring or performing or anything. So I apologize, I'm a day late, but I hope I am not a dollar short. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 733, my podcast faves. The end of any year is traditionally the time to take stock and check the rankings and try to figure out the most listened to episode of the RSE podcast in the last 12 months. Uh, For the record, our most downloaded episode of 2020 was from March 30th in an episode appropriately enough entitled Shakespeare and Plague, in which my friend Dr. Katie Reedy talked about the book she's writing about contagion and performance in the early modern era and how her research shows us what we can learn and take small hope from the plagues that forced the theaters to close in Shakespeare's day. But I'm going to do something a little different this year. I've broken down the RSC podcast episodes, all 732 of them, into eight different categories. And I've picked my favorite episode from each category. Now, this is obviously totally subjective and not at all scientific. So you, if you have a different favorite or can think of another category I failed to include, please send me an email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com so I can correct my horrible mistake or at least acknowledge your preference. Okay, the eight categories that the RSC podcast episodes fall into are RSC folks, comedians, actors, playwrights, authors, directors, journalists, and finally, Shakespeareans. Over the years, some of my favorite conversations have been on the road, in a van, on a plane, or backstage, talking with my fellow RSC actors and technicians. Obviously, in 2020... I only performed once in front of people back in February on Valentine's Day, so there have been very few of those conversations this year. But my absolute favorite of these conversations was from 10 years ago in June of 2010 when we were at the Kennedy Center and we talked to Dominic Conti about the fantastic monologue he performs and helped create at the end of Completely Hollywood Abridged. It's episode 186 called The Conti Beat. I think I I felt that there was more there and I did feel uh, that it it could work. Uh-huh. You know, it totally had a possibility. And I knew you guys, too, were like, you know, like, you're of the mind of, like, you know, if, if it blew up fabulously in my face, right. I'd have gotten the same smile from you guys, you know, <laughs> you know uh, on stage and after, and you just said, yeah, awesome, cut it, you know? <laughs> yeah, all right, we tried that. And I thought, you know, so I felt like I had you guys' trust as well. And oh, like, for sure. I just kind of wish I could have had a picture of this. I didn't get to, show, to look at Reed so much, but, like, looking at your face off as, as I was reeling off this mad... Uh, uh, this madness to you, and you just this smile on your face just went, 
<laughs> well, the, the applause at the end of it didn't hurt either. Yeah, but it was that, there was just this. I believe the technical term it was the shit eating grin on my face <laughs> yeah. because it was just this this set this. Oh, I don't even know how to know how to describe it. This sense of joy of uh, oh my god, look look at what this thing. Yep, yeah, we have a thing, a real thing. She's in a nice white tux and she's in a nice white dress, and I'm all like an usher and everything, and I'm leading them to their chairs. Oh, and I remember, man, I these milk does in my pocket, and they're all warm and gooey, like I like them. So I'm leading them to their chairs, man, and just so sit down, I put the milk duds on the chairs, man. I put the milk duds on the chairs, man. And they said, sorry, milk duds. And I was That was a long time ago, man. I was kind of a dork back then. The next category is comedians. And my goodness, we've talked to a lot of comedians over the years. In fact, the very first guest on the RSC podcast who wasn't a member of the RSC was David Keckner, the second city alum and star of Anchorman and Thank You for Smoking. But we've talked to many other comedians like Rich Fulcher from The Mighty Boosh, Andy Zaltzman, the host of the magnificent podcast The Bugle. And just last month, I had a wonderfully fun conversation with Debbie Downer herself, Rachel Dratch. But if I have to choose, and I do, uh, I'm going to go with my June 2009 conversation with the one, the only, Weird Al Yankovic, who isn't an old friend, but is so gracious and funny, he sounds like one. The, 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 the Weird Al oeuvre, if I can yeah, use that word. Do. I, I use that as much as I possibly can. <laughs> was, was, was our carpool soundtrack. And <laughs> Hardware Store became a song that was like, that was the first song you had to play each morning driving to school. <laughs> kind of get, it's better than a cup of espresso. Kind of gets you going. We've also talked to a lot of actors over the years, like the original cast members of the Broadway musical Something Rotten, Brad Oscar, John Cariani, and Heidi Blickenstaff, uh, Laura T. Fisher, who also created the Chicago Theater Standards, our old friends Elizabeth Dennehy and Olivier Award-winning actor Adrian Scarborough, new friends Alejandra Escalante and Daniel Jose Molina, and William Duffy and Peter James Smith, who played Ed and Larry for all seven seasons of The West Wing. But because we lost him this year, I have to highlight one of my favorite conversations with Elizabeth's dad, Brian Dennehy, who was a giant both in person and on stage and generous enough to talk to me before his matinee performance of the five-hour epic The Iceman Cometh at the Goodman Theater here in Chicago. This is from our conversation back in 2012, and there was no greater pleasure than making this grand, intimidating man of the theater laugh. You're in this definitive production here in Chicago of, of Iceman Cometh, but a, a five-hour marathon, and it's not even your first, it's your third production of this play. Yeah. Is it fair to call you the Iron Man of the American theater? <laughs> Iron Pants? Old Iron Pants? <laughs> Brian and I talked about Eugene O'Neill, which leads us right into the next category. I've been fortunate to talk to a lot of great playwrights over the years, from my old friend Deb Height to my new friend Marjorie Shaker, from my nephew Andrew Moorhead to J. Nicole Brooks, to the most produced playwright in America for several years running now, Lauren Gunderson. 
But I'm choosing as my favorite playwright conversation the one I had with Ken Ludwig, who I talked to in 2016 for our landmark 500th episode because I had the privilege of assisting on the world premiere production of his comedy, Lend Me a Tenor, under its original title, Opera Buffa. Lend Me a Tenor is out-and-out farce. There is some sort of conceit to the plays. Am I right about it, or am I just overgeneralizing? No, I think you're right. I think you're right. A lot of my plays, I, I, I usually don't use the word farce. I kind of like muscular comedy or romantic comedy because I, I, farce, I think, denotes for a lot of people, oh, silliness. Yes. And and I, I, I don't think of them that way. Farce always denotes for me a kind of silliness that my plays in my heart don't have. What they have is is romance. They have character. They have, you know, a storyline that I care deeply about. They say things I want deeply about. As I like to say, um, when I sit down to write, I'm always trying to write Twelfth Night. It comes out as Moon Over Buffalo and Crazy for You and Leading Ladies and Fox in the Fairway and The Games of Foot and Baskerville. And so um, I've written 23 plays and musicals at this point. Uh, I've had six on Broadway and I've had seven on the West End. I'm just about to have a new show, I think, on the West End. And I think a new show on Broadway this year. I'm, I'm very hopeful. I think this is going to be a big year. Um, but all my plays are of a piece in the sense that I think they have a real sense of, ro- I mean, I hope they have a real sense of romance to them and romance about the theater mm-hmm. and a romantic heart in the sense of a, a heart of hopefulness, The real, a real comic engine in the best sense of the word. As I was saying to you earlier, um, you know, uh, it seems to me that, that comedy is not just a matter of happy endings. Comedy is a matter of creating an environment where happy endings are inevitable. Hi, this is Ellen Margolis, Chair of Theatre and Dance at Pacific University in Oregon, and you're listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Now, speaking of playwrights, I've been so lucky to talk to so many great authors of both fiction and nonfiction over the years, like Mark Larson, whose book Ensemble is Required Reading, a great oral history of Chicago theater, rapper and composer Devon Glover, a.k.a. The Sonnet Man, Howard Sherman, who I'll be talking to again in a month about his new book, the novelist Nicole Galland, who I'll also be talking to in February of 2021 about her new book, and, of course, Christopher Moore, who joined me three times in 2020, including our special 700th episode where he interviewed me. But for reasons I think will be obvious, my favorite author interview ever is the one with my mom, Kay Titchener, back in 2010, less than a month before she died, talking about her book, Ballet. And then I attempted just just to tell the story of the evolution yeah. of the dance, yeah. uh, and then winded up with uh, some interesting, some of my favorite story ballets, and then some of the favorite uh, <laughs> movies, like West Side Story. Yeah. And, and the red shoes is in here the too. The red shoes. The red shoes. Um, the book is really handsome. I mean, it's it's on heavy sort of cardboard, so you can so you can color in the pictures uh, if you want, and even cut them out and frame them. That's on the right side of the page, but then on the left side, there's there's an enormous amount of text. It's a color and story album, but it's really a kind of a great reference book as well. Yes, it is. Yeah. Actually, when I read it now, I'd like to write it all over again because I think it's pretty boring. That's <laughs> just written. That, the way, the way, to, way, to, way to sell the books, Mom. 
I've really enjoyed talking to some of the fantastic directors I've gotten to meet and or work with over the years, partly because my own MFA is in directing and it's the kind of the only one thing I'm technically trained to do. Uh, the great Jessica Thebus, for instance, who I've worked with twice, Rob Miles, who created the invaluable The Show Must Go Online in this year of COVID 2020, and who I worked with three times, Melia Bensison, the new AD of Hartford Stage, where as soon as it's safe, we'll be performing the complete history of comedy abridged, and the Tony winning director of Metamorphoses and the Steadfast Tin Soldier Mary Zimmerman, and the Tony winning artistic director of the Goodman Theater here in Chicago, Robert Falls. But since I'm forced to choose, I'll say my favorite director conversations have been with Kate Powers, who's worked with Rehabilitation Through the Arts and created the Redeeming Time Project, organizations that do pioneering, life-changing work with incarcerated people in prisons, and I believe is the only person to make me cry during one of our conversations. And one of the guys who was the, one of the strongest uh, opponents to doing the play said to me last week before our dress rehearsal, he came over and he said, I just want you to know that I was wrong, that this play is so beautiful, and that you can coach my team anytime. <laughs> he also told the, uh, the outside, the actress that came in to play the role of Emily Webb, he said to her, we cannot continue to be friends if you keep making me cry like this because I have a reputation to uphold. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of journalists over the years, like Daniel Pollack-Pelsner, who's written about both West Side Story for Atlantic Magazine and controversially about Mary Poppins for the New York Times, and Scott Simon, who captained the majority of NPR's live coverage of the events of 9-11 19 years ago and talked to me about how he accomplished that. But my favorite journalist conversation, I have to say, happened just this year when I got to speak with MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell about the show he created in the wake of the success of The West Wing called Mr. Sterling. It was such a fun conversation. We spoke for over an hour and it became two podcast episodes. It just feels like you were warming up to some things and using some things in Mr. Sterling that I then saw played later on. In well, that's true. Well, that's Wing. absolutely true. I mean, I can give you one specific episode that was going to be a Mr. Sterling episode uh, that I ended up writing for West Wing because Mr. Sterling didn't live long enough. Right. Um, and I don't know if you noticed this, it, 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 you might not have been working on the day or days that uh, Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller uh, visited me uh, on the set of Mr. Sterling because um, that's when Penn and I started to scheme on the set of Mr. Sterling about how I would include the Penn and Teller trick of burning the American flag, which they do in their show, which I had seen them do in their show a few months earlier in Las Vegas. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, I've got to use that. I've got to put that in the script. And so that would have been in, I don't know, episode 15 or 16 of, of Mr. Sterling. And instead it's in, I don't know, season six, maybe, of The West Wing, I think it is. At Zoe Bartlett's birthday party, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's right there in the teaser. They perform the trick at the White House because, you know, the president's daughter wanted them as the entertainment, um, which, by the way, is the weirdest statement made about the president's daughter in the entire series. 
is that she wanted Penn and Teller, you know, when she could have had anyone in the world. And so, um, um, I'm, I'm sorry about that. She's the person yeah. who loves Penn and Teller and also dates yeah. that idiotic prince. Right. And, and that just, you know, glided by the audience as, as so many things do. Like, why did she want Penn and Teller of all the people on the planet? You know, Probably. and and so um and and so they perform the trick right there in the teaser and the whole episode becomes about the controversy this has created for the White House and how it interacts with Alan Alda's Republican presidential campaign and how he deals with it. And um, and so the West Wing was a, a rich enough, you know, tableau to play it all out and, and use it fully. But absolutely, that was going to be, uh, that was definitely going to be a Mr. Sterling episode. Well, and, and there were several uh, TV shows uh, that tried to capitalize on the success of the West Wing, yeah. and I was in a couple of them. Mr. Sterling, yeah. I played the chief, the chief of staff to the Senate Majority Leader, right. and then in Citizen Baines, which was James Cromwell retires from the Senate with his three King Lear-like daughters, um, I was his chief of staff. I played a yes. lot of chiefs of staff. And I, and I have to say, Austin, I loved seeing that. I just thought, wow, that's an interesting rut to get in for actor. <laughs> when, when did that become a category? And in our final category, I've talked to so many Shakespeareans over the years. The podcast really has of late had a hugely Shakespeare emphasis, which I hope hasn't been too much for some of my listeners. But of all the distinguished Shakespeareans I've talked to, I have to say the greatest privilege was to be able to speak with Sir Stanley Wells. To date, the podcast's only knight of the realm, I think, uh, our greatest living Shakespeare scholar, and at the risk of sounding hyperbolic, might well be the greatest Shakespearean of all time. I know what it means when the reduced Shakespeare Company edits yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Shakespeare's plays. We do it irreverently. Um, what does it mean? What does it mean to edit his plays the way you do it, the reverently? It's true that the word edit has multiple meanings, <clears throat> and quite often nowadays, by editing, people mean rewriting or changing yes. or shortening. Right. Uh, editing, in my sense of the word, in the scholar's sense of the word, means trying to get back to uh, what was originally written, uh, to, to investigating that, and then representing it for the modern reader. That's an important part of it. It means going back to the original texts. Shakespeare, about half of Shakespeare's plays were printed independently in quarto editions in his lifetime, and then the, the two of his colleagues oversaw the, the production of the complete plays, more or less, uh, in what's known as the first folio, print, uh, published in 1623, seven years after Shakespeare died. Now, there are often discrepancies between those that are, between the first printings and the folio printings, uh, and uh, that they need to be investigated and thought about, uh, and also, we need to think about the presentation. Uh, my the first three four months that I was a, after I'd been appointed to do the Oxford edition, I spent on on writing an essay about modernising Shakespeare's spelling. It may seem a rather trivial and pedantic subject, uh, but I think it's an important one to to think to consider how we what we do to present the plays for Shakespeare, for a modern reader. Mm -hmm. We need to think about the staging of the plays. We've put a lot of thought into that. Uh, so you have to think, rethink the stage directions of the plays, mm -hmm. which is the area where the editor has the greatest freedom, because right. the, the original plays 
uh, are often deficient in stage directions. And that's partly because Shakespeare was writing for his own company, so he didn't have to tell them what to do in, on, the, uh, on, on the manuscript. Right. He was able to tell them in person. But if I had to pick a favorite, gun to my head, or to use a less violent idiom, if forced to choose, which has the advantage of being both brief and iambic, I'd choose my conversation with Peter Marks, the longtime theater critic of the Washington Post, in which we argued back in 2019 totally passionately about something completely ridiculous, the value of the song Shapoopy from the musical The Music Man. That just might well be my favorite podcast episode ever. Maybe you could just think of Shapoopy as the take back your mink of <laughs> the music man. Oh, I love that! Brilliant! That's or great. you're just an old Shapoopy. <laughs> That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. I've already realized that I've left out some composers and the entire category of visual artists that I've had such fun talking to over the years, like Larda Souza, who's illustrated the last four of our show posters, or Jenny Mazels, who illustrated and invited us to write the text for Pop-Up Shakespeare, or, or Gary Andrews, who I spoke to twice in 2020, and whose daily doodles led to the publication of Finding Joy about how he coped with the loss of his wife and becoming a single dad. One of the few pleasures of 2020 has been the show that Gary and I began this year called Drawing on Shakespeare, where we talk to fabulous writers and artists and scholars about their Shakespearean influences while Gary draws in real time the things we're talking about. You can find it on YouTube, on Gary's page, or on the RSC YouTube page, and maybe he and I will talk about it for an upcoming episode of the RSC podcast in 2021. Send us your favorite podcast episodes via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks, as always, to favorite guest Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Jack Alderton. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to playwright Ellen Margolis, a fellow Robertson Davies fan who helped me pick last week's holiday ghost story. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. Here's to a much improved 2021, and fair warning, I am going to hug the shit out of some people when it's safe to do so. I'm Austin Titchener, 733, 2199ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. This podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.